a young boy, the age of three, and his mother conspire together to surprise his father, who is away. During the week his daddy is away, his mother will teach him to read. The boy is brilliant. His father returns home and is greeted by his son's cadence, ringing out a chapter from the Bible. The boy would grow, years would pass, family was Christian. As the boy's body grew, so did his mind. And so he left home to attend a prestigious university, where he would eventually graduate at the top of his class in the year 1807. His parents couldn't have been prouder. However, about a year later, on the boy's 20th birthday, August 9th of 1808, he confessed to his parents that while he had been away at school, he had developed a deep friendship with a classmate who had then persuaded him that the Christian faith he had grown up with was false. The boy's parents were heartbroken as he revealed that, in fact, he had no faith. He told them that he intended to travel to New York City to become a playwright, work for the theater. Unfortunately, the life of the theater proved not to be all the boy thought it would be. And so instead, he joined a band of strolling players. As a member of the group, he lived, uh, in his own words, as a reckless vagabond, finding lodgings where I could and cheating the landlord where I found opportunity. The path the boy had chosen was wide. It would lead to destruction. It's this wide path that Jesus warns us against taking this morning as we come to the beginning of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 12 through 14. The main idea is this, as we're going to settle down primarily in verses 13 and 14, enter the kingdom through Jesus and follow Jesus. You can see there from your outline that uh, verse 12 is sort of a hinge verse. It can go with that which came before or that which comes after and really serves as a summary and conclusion for all that Jesus has said prior in the body of the sermon. And so we'll talk about it briefly uh, and then we will move on to this concluding section of the sermon where Jesus gives us four pictures, all of which give us a decision between two choices. And ultimately, the choices between Jesus Christ and his kingdom and life, on the one hand, and on the other hand, death, destruction, separation from God. You can see, see right there, we have two ways, two trees, two confessions, and two houses. Uh, this morning, we're only going to deal with the bolded part. We're going to do the two ways. And so with that in mind, let's ask for God's help and turn our attention to the text. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that we would be in submission to it. For through your word, you exercise lordship in our lives. Pray that you would help us to hear, to obey, 
and to love you. Lord, we confess we have sinned this week, that we have sought first our own kingdoms rather than your kingdoms. We have put our faith in ourselves and our own righteousness rather than in the righteousness of Christ. And so we come to you once more pleading for forgiveness and knowing that we receive it because of Christ our Lord. Because you are a good Father and you give good things to your children who ask. We pray that you would be with us now during this time. What we have not give us, what we are not make us, and what we know not teach us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 12 of chapter 7. Jesus says, Therefore, or so, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Because, for, this is the law and the prophets. This nifty little maxim, Jesus sort of sums up the basic principle of all that he has been saying before. It forms an inclusio with the beginning of the sermon body all the way back in verse 17 of chapter 5. Some of you have paid attention in the past and so you're going, ah, inclusio, I know that fancy word. Uh, It's just a fancy way of saying inclusion is the full version. Uh, And we have referred to it in the past as a literary sandwich. So you have uh, one end that's sort of bread, another end that's sort of bread, and then the middle. And these authors will drop these inclusios throughout the writing to show us how sections fit together. And so it's usually signaled by a theme or words that are repeated. So if you go back to to verse 17, when Jesus is really getting into the body of the sermon, he's already done his introduction, given us the Beatitudes. He then says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And now here, verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, because this is the law and the prophets. And so this is closing off the body of his sermon all of which has been about the law and the prophets. And what Jesus has sought to do from the very beginning is to show us that it's not merely enough to obey the letter of the law, but we must conform our hearts to the heart of the law. And so in chapter 5, he he shows us it's not merely enough to not murder somebody. That's good to not murder people. It's not, it's not merely enough to not, not commit adultery, though it's good to not commit adultery. We, we, if we do those things, or don't do those things, rather, we haven't broken, we haven't kept the law in its entirety. Because if we become angry in our hearts towards our brothers or sisters, we commit, Jesus says, heart murder. If we look at someone lustfully, we commit heart adultery. And Jesus says, it's not just about your external actions, it's about your heart keeping the law. And therefore, because you are heart murderers and heart adulterers, he doesn't say that explicitly, but if they're listening and being honest, they are, you are, I am. Because you are heart murderers and heart adulterers, you stand justly condemned before a holy God. And remember, all of this is in the context of that big question, Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, the only ones who get into the kingdom of heaven, in chapter 5, verse 20, are those who have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes 
and the Pharisees. And so we see from the jump that we cannot live up to this level of righteousness. Then in chapter 6, he, he drills down on those who might in their hypocrisy think, well, I fast, I, I give to the Lord, I pray, and are just doing those things externally. Jesus says, well, beware of these hypocrites. They're not concerned with the glory of God. They're concerned with their own glory. So if you think that you're righteous because of these external acts, you are wrong. He calls us to seek first the kingdom of God rather than our own kingdom. Again, he he calls us away from hypocritical judgment at the beginning of chapter 7 and then tells us, we saw last week, ask for the kingdom. The, The way into the kingdom of God is not by actually living out all these things in perfect righteousness because you can't do that. It's by asking God. It's by coming to me. It is for good reason that the Sermon on the Mount begins with that first beatitude in Matthew 5, 3. You've heard me recite it many, many times. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see, we come into the kingdom of heaven, not by our own righteousness, not by our own good works, but only by the grace of God. Only by getting humble and poor enough to say, God, I need a Savior. I can't keep this law. I can't follow the prophets. I recognize that only Christ can fulfill them. They pointed to him. The end of the law is Christ Jesus, is your Messiah, the the King and his kingdom. And therefore, I went into the kingdom. I need the King. Take me. The way into the kingdom is through receiving it, asking for it, and receiving it in Christ. And that's really what Jesus endeavors to do throughout the sermon. It's the first thing, is he's calling us to himself. Some of us in Sunday school failed the test this morning when we asked, what are the the two things that Jesus is doing in this sermon? Here they are again. We'll remember uh, for next time and going forward. Jesus is calling us to himself. He's calling us to put our faith in him so that we might enter into the kingdom of God. Calling us to himself. And he's calling us to holiness so that that when he does give us these injunctions against anger and against lust, and when he does call us to seek first the kingdom of God and to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, when he tells us to judge not but to also exercise good judgment, he, he really expects us to obey. He expects us to pursue holiness. So once we enter into the kingdom by faith, in Christ, the expectation is that we would take on these kingdom characteristics. We know theologically that these characteristics grow in us uh, by our cooperation together with the Holy Spirit as we grow in godliness. We call it sanctification. Or you've heard me say it's becoming in practice what God has declared us in Christ. And so in verse 12 here, Jesus is looking back over all of that and saying, Well, here's really the long and the short of it. Do unto others as you wish they would do unto you. Or in Luke's version, love your neighbor as yourself. This is really some commentary from Jesus on Leviticus 19.18. Listen, Uh, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is, of course, 
I mean, even in my Bible, it's, it's like got the little subtitles there, the golden rule. Right? I can remember being in elementary school and the golden rule being placarded in the hallways as if, as if this is something that we can really aspire to and do. Right? The front end of the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes we, we come in, we listen to the, the sermon on not being angry or, or, or lustful or always telling the truth, and we go, wow, man, I can't do that. I really do need a Savior. But for some reason, we come to the golden rule and we think, I can do that. Yeah, I can love my neighbor as myself. All I need in life is the golden rule. I, can, I mean, some Christians do build all of their theology on this one verse, extracted from its context, of course. You'll go uh, to those churches and they'll say, right, there, there are three major tenets. Uh, Matthew 7, 1, judge not. Matthew 7, 12, love your neighbor as yourself. And then we'll go to 1 John and say that God is love right? And so all I have to do to really live a good life is to really be a good person. Now, there's two problems with this. But one, if we just have the golden rule uh, extracted from its context, right, it is rooted in the law and the prophets after all, uh, we can twist it up to mean anything we want it to mean. It can become a justification for sin, right? Well, I wouldn't want anybody to tell me if I was in sexual immorality that I was wrong. I would want them to affirm me and welcome me. Therefore, uh, my love for my neighbor requires that I accept and affirm their behavior no matter what it is, right? Love God, love neighbor. Or it can become a, a reason to justify whatever your position is on a particular issue, right? I feel this way, this is the most loving way to act, Therefore, anybody who doesn't act this way that I think is loving, well, they're not really loving their neighbor as themselves, but I am, you see? It can be twisted up and misused. That's this one way that we misunderstand the search. But the second way is that if we try to just build our theology on this, love your neighbor as yourself, we really miss Jesus' primary point, which is this. You can't do it, right? You need a Savior, that's his point. His point isn't to say, all right, I've summed up the law and the prophets. Love God, love neighbor, go and do likewise. You, you've got this. No, his whole point is the opposite. We're supposed to see this command. We're supposed to read this command and be crushed beneath its weight. We're supposed to go, who on earth can love another person the way they love themselves? The answer is only Jesus. Only Jesus has done this perfectly. He's done it for us when he went to the cross, died for our sins so that we might have his righteousness and live. We haven't, we haven't kept this. Earlier this week, uh, Chelsea kindly uh, bought me some cannoli, like a little mini cannoli. Uh, it was great to go with my coffee. Um, I told her she was going out, you know, into the big city and, uh, said, hey, bring me something yummy back. And you know, She knew, cannoli, top of the list. So I had, a, I had a little bit of cannoli with my coffee, really enjoyed it. Now let's say I decided, you know what, I really need to live out, you know, love my neighbor as myself, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. And I wanted to, to love my wife well. And so I began to think, all right, love my neighbor as myself, love my wife as myself. What would Chelsea like? Well, I love, I, you know, I really, I like coffee. I, I 
went off coffee for a while, for those that aren't in the loop, got back on it recently. You know, it's a drug, it's addictive. Um, but I go, you know what, I like coffee, so, so I'm going to get Chelsea a cup of coffee. And uh, I don't have any cannoli around here, I can't really whip that up, but, you know, pancakes are great, everybody loves pancakes, right? Uh, and so I get up early in the morning, and I put some pancakes together, get a nice cup of coffee, a little, one of those little breakfast in bed trays, and I, I take it to her uh, in bed, and, you know, she's going to respond like, Oh, thank you for thinking of me. But she's not going to feel loved at all. In fact, she's going to feel unloved and unlistened to. Why? She hates coffee and she doesn't like pancakes. You see, when e even in the application of this law, that really simple, it can we can get it wrong. But when we do want to, what we do want to do is follow this as a guiding principle. It is a good guiding principle. But it requires uh, that we use our imagination. It requires that we take initiative. So that when I am thinking about how I might want to love and serve my wife, I don't just do this one-to-one. -one. Well, what exactly would I like? Well, she must like that because we're different people with different interests. And so I have to sort of imagine, all right, um, what does my neighbor like, what are some things they like and love? How can I express the love of Christ to them? How can I do good to them? I have to use my imagination, put myself in their shoes a little bit, and I have to take the initiative to do it. You're beginning to see how hard it is to keep this command? I mean, when was the last time that you spent any time thinking, how can I really love and serve someone else? I mean, maybe you're better at it than I am, and maybe you have a pretty high frequency rate. You're like, hey, there were two hours this week, three hours this week, where I sat down and I really thought about how I could best love the various people in my life. Praise God for that. But I think if you're honest, really honest, you still haven't given that much time to it. And you probably still haven't loved your neighbor as yourself, made them your top priority. That's, that's the point of this command and this sort of concluding verse to the body of the sermon. Sums it up. We can't keep the law. We can't get ourselves into the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way into the kingdom. It's through Christ, through dependence on him. Right? He's calling us to himself. It's not that we shouldn't try to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's not that we shouldn't try by the strength and power of the Holy Spirit to do to others what we wish they would do to us. Right? We want to pursue holiness. But we ought to learn from this verse, not I can do this all by myself, but to recognize that our goodness to others is rooted in God's goodness to us. You see how verse 12 Sorry, it's a little convoluted. I'm a little disorganized in my head today. Uh, verse 12 here is connected to verse 11 and to that which comes before. Our doing good to others is grounded in God's doing good to us. And so we receive goodness and love and mercy from God, and therefore, or so, what we wish that others would do to us, we do to them. We extend 
goodness and love to others. We, we seek their good. That's how the logic is working there. But we can't do it perfectly. We can't get ourselves into the kingdom. We need to enter the kingdom through Christ, through the, the narrow gate. And that's where Jesus takes us in verse 13 as he begins concluding his sermon with these four pictures that call us to make a decision, to submit to him as king or continue in a rebellion that ends in destruction. Look with me at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so, so Jesus is setting up for us a dichotomy. Sort of like if you've read Psalm 1, there's the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Or in our scripture readings this morning, I set before you life and death. And as Joshua said in his, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus is doing the same thing. He's setting before us the, the gate of life and the, the gate of death. And both the gate of life and the gate of death have paths laid out beyond them. One is easy and one is very difficult. And Jesus is saying, I want you to choose the narrow gate, the hard way rather than the easy way. Sort of surprising, but, you know, let's, let's come at this objectively. You know, we're going to get our piece of paper out. We're going to draw a line down the center of it. And on one side, we're going to write pros. And on the other side, we're going to write cons. And we're going to evaluate both of these roads, okay? So, so the wide road we see, well, it's wide. There is enough room on this road for us, everyone else, and all of our stuff. Whatever we want. The wide road, or the wide way, is the way of self-rule. It's the way of the world. This path has room on it for every person who doesn't trust in Christ Jesus. Really, it is interesting, I think, primarily in view here, those that are on the wide way are the Pharisees, or the religious people who actually think by holding all these um, good things that I'm doing, holding them up to the Lord, that's going to make me righteous. It actually has them on the wide way. The wide way is wide enough for those religious people who are trusting in themselves rather than Christ, and it's wide enough for irreligious people. It's, it's got atheists on it. It's got those who are apathetic to religion on it, you know, live and, and let live. It has secular humanists on it has Muslims on it, it has Hindus on it, it has those who would worship nature on it, it has all manner of pagan on it. It's a wide road, very diverse. I mean, that's got to be a positive, right? Diversity is a good thing. Um, it's also so wide, it's going to have lots of people on it. It's going to be popular. And let's be honest, who doesn't want to be with the popular crowd? Right? Who doesn't want the approval of other people. Uh, that's probably in the pro, pro column too. This is looking like a pretty good way to go. 
Third, it's easy. The wide way, I mean, he said it's it's easy. It's sort of, it's like getting on the interstate, right? Do you want to take all these crazy loopy back roads on your trip from here to Texas, or do you want to jump on the interstate? Well, the interstate, it's wide. Anyone can get on it. It's got all those restaurants and things along the way. It's really easy. Now, if you go back roads only, you're going to going to take some time. You're going to get lost and probably car sick and have to stop in a like, place that's like a scene out of deliverance. You know, it's not, it's not, not great. So this, the wide way is sounding pretty good. It's, it's, it's popular. It's diverse. It's easy. I mean, it's just it's user-friendly. And yet it offers to us, to those who are on it, a false assurance. It feels like the right choice. Popular, easy, everybody's doing it. But surprisingly, the end of this way is destruction. Destruction. Those on the wide road think, I'm headed in a good direction. Everybody else is headed this way. Seems pretty good. And yet the assurance of safety is faulty. How often do we assure ourselves wrongly of our decisions, of our ethics and morals, based on our popularity, based on popular opinion. There's a false assurance here. The end of the road is destruction. Those on it are a bit like uh, frogs in a pot that is getting ready to be brought to a boil. Just in for a natural, easy sort of dip that feels good at first, and yet before you know it, if you're a frog and the pot goes to a boil, you're dead! Destruction. Be wary of that which is easy. I mean, how often in life is the easy way the best way? I mean, just think about it. Uh, athletics, no, you, it takes hard work if you're going to be any good. Uh, you know, music, discipline. Uh, even, I mean, academics, education, takes work. Easy way very seldom yields really good results. But yet those on this wide road will feel good because it's popular, diverse, easy. It reminds me uh, of C.S. Lewis has written a book called The Screwtape Letters. You have a senior demon named Screwtape who is instructing sort of a junior demon about how to best lead his, the person to which he's assigned away from the Lord. In one of his letters, he, he quite famously says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Way of the world is wide, and it feels like it might lead to life. Easy and popular. Yet, it leads to destruction. Beware, friends, 
of that which is easy. Be suspicious of popularity. God's way cannot be discovered by an appeal to majority opinion because the majority is on the road to destruction. It's wide and easy, and therefore those who enter by it are many. That's the, the wide road, uh, and we're going to compare it now to the narrow road. And if we just, if we didn't think about the destination, the, the first option would be like first class on an airplane, right? and the second option would feel more like coach. Like on the one option, you're, you're going to somewhere undesirable. I'm, I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. I'm trying to think of an undesirable destination. Uh, and the other one is taking you to, to paradise. Rather ride in coach to paradise than in first class uh, to Cleveland, you know. Uh, figure, figure, you know, figure out which, which course is better here. Still, let's, let's evaluate. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. Gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. The narrow way, I mean, it's, it's not big enough for us and all of our stuff. I think that's one of the first things we're supposed to see is in this image is you can't take your good works with you. To get through the narrow gate, we have to get low and be dependent on Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I think first, and also we can't, we can't take any of those good things with us. So we have to kind of squeeze through. Think of it like if you've ever tried to squeeze through a gate that wasn't quite big enough. I always say like, get skinny, you know, try to push on the way through. It's this uncomfortable sort of entrance. And we learn that the way, it doesn't get any easier. It's hard, but it's this way that leads to life. Jesus calls his followers to trust in him, and he promises to us not an easy road, but a hard one. Not popularity, but persecution. Not luxury, but suffering. Remember, remember that beatitude, verse 10 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's for good reason. Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, Jesus says the way you enter into the narrow gate is by dying to yourself. You die to yourself so that you might live to God. You, you die to yourself, you take up the cross, and you follow the way of the king. This is what Jesus did. He died to himself so that you and I and all who put our faith in him might live. Jesus went the way of suffering. He went the way of the cross for the good of others. Love them as he loved himself. Seek their good. 
And so we, who would want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, uh, we come to Jesus in dependent faith, and we take up our cross, and we follow him. And the road is hard. And therefore, those who find it are, are few. Friends, if we are to follow our good and mighty king, we must die to ourselves daily. Die to our pride daily. Look daily and consistently to the good of others. We have to be those who are willing to crucify the flesh and its desires. Those who are trying to live by the Holy Spirit, who are forsaking anger and lust, who are telling the truth, who are praying to our Heavenly Father for His grace and his mercy. We have to be those who are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all else, even food and water. The way of the cross is hard. The narrow way is hard, and those who find the life gate are few. One such person who walked the narrow way was Adoniram Judson. He is the boy from our introduction. Adoniram Judson knew what it was to suffer greatly in this life for the cause of Christ. I cannot recount all of the incredible things and incredible sufferings that befell Judson this morning. For that, you'll have to turn to one of his biographies or, or Google him. But I do want to share with you a small part of it. You see, he had lost his faith when away at school when a classmate by the name of Jacob Eames persuaded him into deism and out of Christianity. And Judson had indeed, as we saw earlier, began walking the wide road of a vagabond. It is until one day, while traveling, he found refuge in a small and unfamiliar village inn. He had been looking for a room. The innkeeper told him, we're full up. And Judson insisted, are you sure there are no rooms here? The innkeeper replied, there is one room, but it is across the hall from a man who is dying. And the innkeeper apologized. Yet Judson said, ah, the sounds of a dying man will not bother me. Let me have the room. And so he took the key and went to take his place in the inn. The night was long, and his sleep was interrupted by comings, goings, low voices, groans, and gasps. Sleep eventually did find him, though, and he awoke the next morning to the wonderful sound of silence. As he was leaving, he casually spoke with the innkeeper. How is the man who was so ill? He is dead. Do you know who he was? A young man from the college in Providence. Providence, you say, really? Well, what was his name? I might have known him. Jacob Eames. Judson's heart stopped and his body froze. 
Jacob Eames, the friend that had persuaded him out of Christianity and into unbelief, was dead, had died the night before in an adjacent room. Judson was shaken, remained at the inn for hours, contemplating life and death, and specifically the death of his unbelieving friend. One thought would arrest him for months. Lost. Eames was lost. His biographer writes that hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not be pure coincidence. In God's strange providence, the death of Eames would lead some months later to Adoniram's full-blooded conversion. A decision to enter through the narrow gate and walk the hard way. At the time of his conversion, he committed to becoming a missionary. Later, at his commissioning, met and fell in love with the first of his future wives. I say wives, not because he was a polygamist, but because he would lose two of his three wives to death. Yet the suffering did not take him by surprise, nor them. He, nor those who joined him, had any delusions about the cost of following Jesus. Before beginning his missionary work, and while courting his first white Anne, wife, Anne, he wrote this letter to her father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved, through her means from eternal woe and despair? Anne's father left the decision up to her, and she chose to go the narrow way with Adoniram. Eventually, the couple settled in Burma, which is now Myanmar. They ministered for six years before baptizing their first convert. Five years after baptizing their first convert, a British fleet arrived in Rangoon and bombarded the harbor. All the Westerners were immediately thought to be spies. As a result, Judson was dragged from his home and imprisoned. His feet were chained. And at night, a bamboo pole was lowered through the fetters between his legs so that he could be ho hoisted up with only his shoulder and head resting on the ground. His pregnant wife, Anne, would walk two miles every day during this period to the palace to ask for some mercy from the magistrate. 
And eventually she was successful in securing some time for Adoniram and the rest of the prisoners out in a courtyard where they had to be shaven because of the vermin living in their hair. Piper writes, Almost a year later, the prisoners were suddenly moved to a more distant village prison, gaunt with hollow eyes, dressed in rags, crippled from torture. There, the new prison, mosquitoes from rice paddies drove them mad as they feasted on their bloody feet. Judson's daughter, Maria, had been born by now, and Anne was almost as sick and thin as Adoniram. But still, she pursued him with her baby to take care of him as she could. Her milk dried up. And surprisingly, a jailer had mercy on them, actually let Judson take the baby out into the village while fettered in the evening to, to beg women to nurse his baby. Finally, on November 4, 1825, Judson was suddenly released. The government needed him as a translator to negotiate with Britain. The long ordeal was finally over. Seventeen months in prison on the brink of death, with his wife sacrificing herself and her baby to care for him as she could. His imprisonment was over, but Anne's health was broken. Eleven months later, she died. Six months after Anne died, their daughter Maria died also. There's only a small window into the many sufferings of Judson. He served in Burma 38 years until his death at 61. He only came home once. His work was costly. His decision to follow Jesus on the narrow way found him losing two wives, losing seven of his 13 children, and numerous colleagues and friends, all before he succumbed to a violent illness himself. He had become so sick that he got on a ship at the end of his life. This is what you did back in the day, was you would hope the salt water would cure you. And there on the ship, he continued to have convulsions that finished with extreme vomiting. One of his last sentences was this. How few there are who die so hard. Judson died hard again and again and again for the glory of God because he was on the path of life and he counted the cost. He was laying up for himself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. He was seeking first the kingdom of God. He was dying to himself so that others might come to live in Christ. He was loving his neighbor as himself. He was following in the footsteps of Jesus, giving of himself for the good of others. He died again and again and again, and God gave life. Because of Judson's pioneering work, the Burma Baptist Convention is the largest Christian force in Myanmar today. Patrick Johnson in the early 2000s recorded that there were 3,700 congregations with 617,000-plus members and almost 2 million affiliates, all in part 
because of Judson's work. He went the narrow way. Brothers and sisters, there is a decision before each of us each day. Will we die to ourselves and continue going the hard way of the cross, the way of the King? Will we follow Jesus to the end? Or will we forsake him for the wide road? Non-Christian, there is a choice before you this morning. You can stay on the wide way, but be warned. The end is destruction. The pleasures of earth, they are fleeting. The treasures of earth decay and will be destroyed also. Enter through the narrow gate. Put your faith in Christ Jesus and submit to his lordship. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus who came and lived the life we should have lived, fulfilled the law and the prophets, so that we, when we trust in him, might be credited with his righteousness before you and come to know you not as judge, but as father. We thank you that not only are we credited with his righteousness, but our sins were credited to his account on the cross, where indeed you poured out the judgment that was due to us onto him. By his wounds, we are healed. Therefore, Father, we happily die to ourselves daily that we might love and follow our good and mighty King. We thank you, Father, that through Christ, we can enjoy the kingdom, life together with you and your people. Pray that you would help us to focus our eyes on that which is eternal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.